My name is Vicki Childs, and this is The Vicki Childs Show, produced and broadcast by Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. I'm a private investigator in South Carolina. I've been a private investigator for 24 years and wanted to talk with you today about an interesting topic that we use in private investigations called computer forensics. I have a special guest today. His name is Steve Abrams, and he is an attorney in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Steve, are you there? Yes, I am, Vicki. Thank you for having me. Steve is also a computer forensics expert, and one of the things I've learned over the past few years in private investigations is that using computer forensics has become more and more acceptable and more and more prevalent in the civil and legal world, civil and criminal legal world. So when I have a case and I have a client that comes to me and says, I have a computer, I don't know what's on it, but my husband's left me and I need to know what's on it because I think there's information about finances or an affair, um, then I call Steve. He can do an analysis of that computer and image the hard drive, and then he can maintain the credibility of that information for court later on. So, Steve, if you would, talk about computer forensics a little bit and, and how entangled it is in the legal system and just what's involved in doing that. Sure. Um, computer forensics is basically um, the science of retrieving uh, data from computers in a way that maintains its probative value for use in a court of law. And what that, what that means is uh, it's a way of extracting data from a computer using standard um, scientific methods um, and that use, by using those established methods, the data which we collect is then um, admissible in court. Um, it's admissible because the methods that we use are standard, and it's admissible because the people who are allowed to do computer forensics are licensed by, in, the, in my case, the state of South Carolina uh, as an attorney. Um, you can also do it as a private investigator in South Carolina, and you can also do it as a member of law enforcement in South Carolina. Okay, and your background, too, just so our listeners will know, you were a probation officer when I first, I mean a probation officer, private investigator when I first met you. And in your private investigator business, you specialized in computer forensics, and that's primarily what you did, correct? That's correct. I was a private investigator for eight years, and I did um, computer forensics um, on and off for the past uh, 25 years, um, first for the United States government um, as a contractor and then later as a private investigator. Um, and now I continue to do computer forensics um, as a licensed attorney, uh, licensed in the state of South Carolina and the District of Columbia. Um, and essentially, uh, I'm, my specialty is computers and um, also cell phones, which have now become smartphones. And so that's called uh, being a, a, a mobile device examiner. So I'm both a certified mobile device examiner and also a computer forensics examiner. And primarily when I've had cases that involve computer forensics, it was in domestic cases involving divorce and child custody. In, in what you do in analyzing the hard drive and imaging the hard drive and then preserving that for use in, in uh, civil and criminal cases, just, just by way of brief explanation, how do you do that in a legal way and maintain the integrity of the evidence that you get? Sure. Um, basically, the standard method of doing computer forensics, which has been uh, tried and true 
uh, as the best practices for both law enforcement and, and also for private investigators, um, is to make what's called a forensic image of the hard drive. So within every computer system, um, one of the components that's integral to the computer is the hard drive, which is where data is stored. Um, and any time that, for example, Microsoft Windows runs, it's reading and writing data off that hard drive. So if an email were to come in, that email will be stored to that hard drive most likely. Instant messages probably are stored to that hard drive. So what we do is we go in and we make a forensic image, which is an exact copy of the hard drive in the subject computer. And then we use uh, computer forensic software. Um, basically, there are several different types of software that computer forensic examiners use, but the software all has to be tested and shown to work reliably um, so the courts will accept the evidence that comes from that software. And we use the computer forensic software to extract the data that we're looking for, the emails and the documents and the photographs and the movies and anything else anybody's looking for. We use our computer forensic software to extract that data and document exactly where on the hard drive it came from so that um, the party on the other side of the lawsuit can hire their own computer forensics examiner and verify that, in fact, the data that we found was what we said it was and was where on the hard drive we said it was. Um, and then, basically, it's just a matter of interpretation as to what the data means. Um, in most cases, I've never had a problem that another computer forensics examiner on the other side didn't find exactly what I found or I, didn't, I found exactly what he found. It's just the interpretation, usually, what it comes down to. Okay, so if, if I'm a woman who suspects that my husband has had an affair and I want to to know what his emails are saying and I want to know what tra monetary transactions he might be doing online, for instance, or what chat lines he might be in online, why don't I just go buy the software, the key logging software, or the software that allows me to get into his information? Uh, well, a couple of reasons. The, the first reason you probably don't want to do that is um, depending on um, the type of software that you get, you might actually be unwittingly uh, violating one or more federal and or state laws against wiretapping. Um, the other reason, and I'll get into that a little bit more in a minute, the other reason that you don't want to do that yourself is that you want the data to be collected by a third-party neutral, somebody who can get the data into court and get it into court in a way that has some credibility. If, for example, the wife were to collect um, incriminating emails on her husband, um, she has a reason to be biased in the material she's bringing to court, and the credibility of that material might not be as um, as great as if, somebody who's a licensed investigator for the licensed by the state who has to be um, um, no, above any reproach as far as honesty is concerned um, the the weight of the evidence will be greater if it comes from from a licensed investigator than if it came from one of the parties in the lawsuit um, talking about the um, the wiretap issue um, basically there are several statutes that that are both uh, federal statutes and then the states usually have similar statutes that prevent you from um, 
well, two things. There's a set of statutes that prevent you from intercepting somebody's electronic or oral communications, and that's that's uh, A-U-R-A-O. As, for example, you can't eavesdrop on somebody, you can't wiretap their phone, and you can't be picking up their emails or instant messages off of the wire, the electronic communications, because that would violate both federal and state law. Um, and at the same time, there's also... Um, statutes that prevent you from um, exceeding your authority on protected computers or in interstate commerce. So you can't log into somebody's account, even though you know their username and password, without their permission, because that would then violate other federal statutes. In that case, it would be probably 18 U.S.C. 1030, which is called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Okay, so um, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm using key logging software or another type of software to to get information, the, the, my credibility might be in question because I could actually then go in, if I know passwords, I could go in and create emails to look like someone had written them when they really didn't. Exactly. But if, fact, you image the hard drive, but if you image the hard drive, you, you have an exact image. And uh, it's my understanding, too, you can even find information that was previously deleted. That's, that's, that's correct. Um, I'm working on a case right now where the husband has been contacting um, paramours through Craigslist um, and other online sites and was smart enough to use um, an iMac rather than a PC and was smart enough to use the guest account rather than one of the permanent accounts on the machine. And whenever you log out of the guest account on an iMac, it erases all the files that you've been working with. So if the wife, for example, or somebody who wasn't skilled in computer forensics were to go on and look at that computer, they wouldn't see any of the emails or any of the uh, websites or other communications that this person had been engaging in. Uh, you need computer forensic software to actually extract those deleted um, um, files. I, I mean, the, the analogy here would be um, even though the operating system deletes the file, it's still resident on the hard drive. It's very similar to if you had a, could imagine a library where you have the books on the shelf and you have a card catalog that tells you where the books are. When a file is erased by whatever operating system, whether it's uh, a Windows operating system or Mac, um, when the files are erased, they're not actually overwritten in most cases. In most cases, it's simply the card catalog, the cards have been removed for those files. So if you do a search of all the books on the shelf, you'll find the files, even though the card catalog, in this case the directory on the hard drive, says that they no longer exist. Okay. Steve, it's time for us to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about this issue. We've been talking to Steve Abrams, who's an attorney in South Carolina and a computer forensics expert. Steve, um, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, we we talked a little bit about why computer forensics can be important and why it's important not to do it yourself. And also I want to talk about what you can find. I know there are a lot of different things going on out there now for someone who's committing adultery. The typical adulterous relationship we think of is meeting at a hotel, meeting in an apartment, and actually committing adultery and having sex, but there are a lot of things online now that, that people are doing. Mostly we're going to talk about what men are doing today for the women out there.
But um, give us some examples of what you found in your your line of work. Sure. Um, I, there are actually, um, as with every new technology, um, the sex trade seems to take over the technology first. Um, it's happened all the way since the printing press and every new technology since then. Um, and a lot of the advances that have taken place uh, with the Internet have been pushed along by the sex trade because that's initially what was the profitable business over the Internet. Um, so there are typical, it's, there are things such as chat rooms where people will meet um, and chat. And if you go to any of the uh, websites that host chat rooms, there's usually an, an adult-type chat room where people are there for the purpose of you know, having um, adult sexually-oriented conversations over the Internet. Um, there are also um, online um, peep shows, if you will, where for a fee you can watch an actress or actor, depending on, on what it is you're looking for. You can, you can watch them perform sex acts over your computer. Um, some of them, for a larger price, you can actually um, communicate using a microphone and a webcam to the um, actor or actress, and you can actually be engaged in a conversation with them and tell them what it is you want to see. So it's sort of a high-tech version of the peep shows that have been around you know, in the red light districts of various cities for a long time. Um, there's also now um, online dating um, websites. Um, the ones that people probably know most would be something like Match.com um, or Adult Friend Finder. But in the last um, five years or so, they have uh, just, uh, there are so many more of them now. Um, it seems like every case that I uh, work on, and I've worked on over 700 cases, uh, every case I work on, I find two or three new uh, adult dating sites that have popped up. And usually when um, either a man or a woman is trying to conduct an affair over the Internet, um, at some point in time they may start just looking at pornography sites um, or looking at these online peep shows, but at some point they're going to get themselves probably involved in the online dating uh, websites. And at that point they're going to be leaving evidence on the computer that their spouse can hire me to find. Um, and um, a lot of these online dating websites, uh, besides allowing people to chat back and forth, um, and they'll do a real-time uh, chat back and forth, the, the, the latest wrinkle in all of this is actually uh, remote-operated sex toys. Which, yeah, you, um, mentioned, you mentioned to me the other day a new word I had not heard called teledildonic, and I feel like I need to use some Perel when I even say that word. But uh, you you described to me what that was. Explain to our audience what teledildonic is. Right. Um, there's a there's a field now of teledildonics, which basically is they've taken the traditional um, sex toys, uh, battery operated sex toys, um, and they've added a new wrinkle to them, which is that they now can be remotely operated across the internet, being plugged into a computer on each side. Um, and they've also, on some of the newer ones, there's some feedback between what's being done on one toy on one end will be kind of translated into some type of action on the toy on the other end of the connection. 
Um, and, and the latest wrinkle in all of this is now they've taken away the wires, so you don't have to be wired to the computer anymore. And locally, they run over Bluetooth. So, so um, Steve, you and, I, home field. you and I live in a state in South Carolina where adultery is still viewed as a grounds for divorce. And... And it's still recognized by the courts. It still bars alimony, and it can get you a divorce faster than the one-year separation required in this state. How, how does the, what we think of traditionally as adultery, how does this change things? And isn't it the same thing as adultery? It's just well, a different you know, form. Exactly. I mean, the, the whole law on adultery um, has been changing a lot over the centuries. Initially, um, the, um, adultery was simply seen as a property crime in that the wife was seen as the property of the husband and if she was in fact impregnated by a man other than the husband, it was basically a trespass to his chattel that somebody used his property and as a result of that, he would be raising somebody else's child. Um, and so at that point, um, adultery was seen only as in a, um, as the um, as intercourse between a man and a woman when the man and woman were not husband and wife, and in fact when the wife was married to somebody else. Um, but in recent times, that law has been uh, on adultery has changed to to reflect uh, same-sex couples and to uh, reflect other types of sex acts that don't involve intercourse. Um, and there's been a lot of um, uh, work in other states outside of South Carolina, uh, principally New Jersey is one that I'm familiar with, where they're starting to, to um, reflect on the psychological literature, which is um, starting to come out, saying that an online affair does as much damage to the intimacy of a marriage as a traditional um, in-person affair. Um, and that because it does the same damage, that public policy for that state should say that it should be treated the same. Um, in some states like North Carolina, for example, where they have a ground of mental cruelty uh, as a grounds for divorce, which we don't have in South Carolina, if one spouse, call her the innocent spouse, discovers um, the... Uh, explicit emails of her husband to a paramour over the internet and that causes her mental pain and, ag and anguish she could actually use that as ground as fault grounds for divorce under the mental cruelty fault ground um, unfortunately in South Carolina we've never recognized mental cruelty um, and um, so we have a much harder uh, job in trying to show that an online affair a cyber sex affair if you will um, should be treated as a fault ground, but I but I think that the legislature might be amenable to see it from a public policy standpoint. That since it's ruining the marriage and causing um, the courts to have to intervene, court time is very expensive and it's a precious commodity. That it should be treated the same. And and either uh, way, either way, whether it's in person affair or an online affair, especially given the remotely controlled toys that you were mentioning it, it seems to me that the law hasn't caught up with where people are that as usual it takes a while for the law to catch up 
and that ultimately right. I would think that they would be recognized if they can be proven without a doubt that they would be recognized as adulterous affairs and that perhaps the courts would recognize them in, in such a way that uh, divorces could be gra- uh, granted on those grounds in the states where adultery matters right well that, that that's a good point I mean in South Carolina in order to prove adultery there are two elements there's inclination and opportunity um, clearly somebody sending uh, sexually explicit emails um, to a paramour uh, that would certainly be seen as inclination and in fact uh, I've traced the law all the way back into the 1920s where they recognized that love letters uh, written between paramours uh, could establish inclination so a love letter or an email pretty much um, analogous to each other um, where we're going to have to stretch the the legislature's mind a little bit and the court's mind a little bit is getting that opportunity when the two parties have never physically been in the same space um, and that's really the the gist of the argument here in South Carolina or the problem is that we have to get over the opportunity um, element to um, adultery and we have to do it in a way that doesn't require them to be in the same room with each other. And it sounds like that from computer forensics and um, your analysis of these computers that you would be able to prove at least at least that certain things are happening and perhaps that even the line is being crossed um, remotely. Would that, um, would that well, be something you could prove with the analysis or, of the hard drive? Sure. I mean, um, if somebody's having an explicit chat with somebody else, uh, where they're describing that they're doing certain things while they're having that chat, that's going to be recovered by computer forensics, and you're going to be able to show that this um, uh, cyber-sexual affair was going on and that they were uh, doing certain things with each other online. I mean, with webcams right now, that's the popular um, element to these cyber-sex affairs now is that both parties have a webcam, so they can actually see what each of them is doing. Right. Uh, they can speak to each other over the microphone that's part of the webcam. So it's basically um, what they would call telepresence, where they're actually present within the same communications, and it's just as if they were there, but they're actually doing it um, at a distance over the webcam and over the computer. Okay, Steve, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Steve, I wanted to come back to the issue of, um, of how of online chats and how uh, how women know that that's going on when it's going on. I know that, um, or if they suspect it, I know if they suspect it, they can bring you the computer, they can have it imaged, and I know they can check the web log and see what websites people have been to if they haven't been deleted. But is there is there an easy way to sort of figure this out before they need to bring you the computer and have it imaged or someone like you? Well, it's possible. Um, It really depends on on how sophisticated or unsophisticated, if it's a woman, how her husband might be. Um, A lot of the chat appliances that people use, the little pop-ups like AIM or um, IRC chat or various other chat um, 
applications will start up when the computer boots up. So if they notice when they boot the computer that a number of these, these chat applications pop up on the screen and they know that they're not the one who uses chat, that's probably a pretty good indication that somebody using that computer has been active on chat. Okay, and then um, if they if the, they suspect that, and it, especially if they are are feeling alienation, and I think alienation is an important aspect to this, is that the wife is feeling alienated in some regard, either because of loss of interest of the husband in her, or because there's something else going on in the marriage that's causing a rift and and um, creating less intimacy. So then he may be finding it somewhere else. And I have a lot of people that come to me, that's the issue that they're having, and that's why they start to suspect things. Along with the other things that men sometimes do, they start to lose weight, go to the gym, wear a different cologne, they start dressing differently, and all these things are little telltale signs of, of possibly having an affair. So, right, and, and, and I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, what I was going to say is, that there, there are pretty much telltale signs that your husband might be involved in something on the computer. One thing would be if he spends large amounts of time on the computer, especially in the evening, um, or gets up in the middle of the night to go use the computer, um, that's probably a good red flag. Um, another one is if you use the computer and you find pop-ups for uh, pornography on the computer. He's probably been to either porn sites or dating sites. Um, and um, if when you walk into the room, he turns the monitor off quickly or has the screen pointed in such a way that when you enter the room, you can't see what's on the screen. Um, and then finally, as you said, if the husband becomes withdrawn from the wife and from the rest of the family, um, that's pretty much a good indication that he's now kind of living vicariously through his chat on the computer and um, you know, has kind of withdrawn um, affection and um, involvement with the, with the spouse or with the family. And that, that's usually uh, a pretty good indication to a woman that she needs to get that computer looked at. Uh, it's been my experience over the years, too, when dealing with, with uh, women clients especially, um, it, it, women seem to, if if they are having an affair or or have had, um, they seem to become very emotionally involved in that affair. There's there's love there. There's great emotion there, um, and I've seen it happen with men too. But mostly, especially in what we're talking about today, men men are just in it for the sex. And, and but that alienation is still there in the marriage and still causes a, a, a rift. And of course, that can be a psychology guest show one day, and we can talk about that for hours. But um, right now, I think we have a call from Kay in Myrtle Beach. Kay, are you there? Yeah. What's your question, I'm here. Kay? Um, I have a question for Steve. It's not really dealing with um, um, a husband using the internet for. Uh, inappropriate behavior, but I have a friend, it's it's about computer forensics, and I have a friend who uh, believes her computer was infected, somebody gave her um, a CD, um, and she put it into her computer, and, and now since then, her computer is doing a lot of strange things. It's like it's almost like people are using her computer remotely, and they're reading her email, and so on, and 
uh, she's gotten all, she's used all the different kinds of spyware and malware that she knows to put on her computer, but she just is now paranoid that someone is watching everything that she's doing because of all her keystrokes and so on on her computer. And there is one person in particular who have a, a motive to do that. She tells police agencies to have it looked into, but most of the people that she's talked to have said, well, it's too far for us to drive to do anything about that. And I'm just wondering, for people that suspect that somebody has done something illegal like that, what can they do? Um, that's a good question. Um, and the problem is that there's so much spyware out there right now that the software that you would buy to detect spyware is always one step behind the new spyware that's being created. Um, it, it, I mean, there there is a very common or becoming more common uh, type of an infection that computers can get, which are sometimes referred to as botnets, where essentially somebody infects the computer so that they can then take over that computer remotely. Um, there are ways to detect them. There are botnet detection software that's out there, but it's not usually what um, somebody who's not a, a computer technician or a computer forensics person would know how to use. Um, the other thing is that if you have software that's taking over the computer, when the computer boots, it has to be started at, at boot time. And as far as Microsoft Windows is concerned, there are a couple places in the registry which is um, a set of files that Microsoft Windows uses for its own uh, internal uh, record keeping. Uh, there are places in the registry where a computer forensics examiner could look to see what applications are coming on at startup time. And that might be one place uh, for her to have somebody check out to see if, in fact, when she put that CD into her computer, uh, it didn't add an application that's starting up at boot time that's then turning that computer into um, a zombie, essentially, that somebody else can get remote access to. And, and Steve, uh, isn't it true, too, that even email attachments can can put this, this software on computers and then people can have access remotely? I remember a few years ago when I had a client that came to me and her ex-boyfriend, she felt like, knew everything that she was planning to do, every place she was planning to go. And you actually were able to analyze her hard drive and find that he had sent her an email and infected her computer, right. and he was able to intercept all her, all her information. Right, and in fact, that case be, became a, a criminal matter. Um, essentially, what happened there was the boyfriend was using uh, a program called eBlaster, which is put out by a company called Spectrosoft. And eBlaster um, is a keystroke logger, and it also keeps track of any documents that you edit or view or any emails or uh, instant messages that you send or receive. And um, what eBlaster does is it basically packages up everything that it finds and then sends it remotely over the Internet to whomever uh, planted it on the computer. The um, really um, interesting aspect of eBlaster is that you can actually put it onto somebody's computer by sending them an email with an attachment in it. And if they open the attachment, um, their computer will crash um, and it will reboot itself. So that's one way you know that you've been infected. But what will happen is eBlaster will actually uh, set itself up and then reboot the computer because the computer has to boot in order to start up um, as I was just explaining to the caller. It needs to reboot in order to start up these um, 
remote control type programs. And when the computer reboots, it now has eBlaster on it, and from that point forward, everything you do on that computer is being forwarded onto the person who infected the computer. The really insidious thing about eBlaster is if the person wants to take it off the computer, they don't need you don't need to open an email they send you. If you say, well, my computer started acting strange after the email I, I received from Joe, so I'm not going to open any of Joe's emails anymore. Well, all he has to do is send you another email with a subject line in that email that is pre-configured to trigger the software to remove itself. So you don't even have to open the second email to remove it. You simply have to receive it. And uh, eBlaster sees that subject line and then securely erases itself off the hard drive, leaving pretty much not a trace. Oh, so you can actually cover up the evidence from afar. Steve, I, I want to uh, exactly. thank Kay for the call, and we are going to go to break. And when we come back, we're also going to talk about kids, how to protect your kids from online predators, and how to monitor your kids on the computer. We'll be right back. Hello, race fans. This is Jeff Gilmer, creator of the Child Show. Um, we've been talking to Steve Abrams this afternoon about computer forensics. And, Steve, I want you to give out your phone number and your, your uh, email address, or rather your website information for the callers if they want to get in touch with you. Sure. Um, my office is in, in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. And I can be reached, uh, the office phone number is area code 843-216-1100. Um, or you can contact me through my website, and that is uh, www.abramsforensics.com, and I'll spell that. It's A-B-R-A-M-S-F-O-R-E-N-S-I-C-S.com. Okay. Um, we've had a... Uh, Online request, Steve, an qu online question um, about using software to track what your children do online. And I know there's software for that, same software that you can use to track the uh, your husband's activities, but what makes it legal to track your kids' activities where it might not be legal to track your husband? Uh, that's, a, that's an excellent question. Basically... Um, the reason that you can use uh, programs like eBlaster or, or other spyware to track what your children are doing is because the courts see that the parents have an obligation to safeguard their children. Um, and also, prior to uh, the age of, of 18, um, parents can consent on behalf of their children. They can constructively consent. So the courts have held that... Um, the parents can use these programs to monitor their children because the parents can constructively consent on behalf of their children to the uh, privacy invasion that these uh, programs uh, might present. Um, and, I mean, one of the things that um, your callers might be interested or your listeners might be interested in uh, is going... The FBI has a very good Parents Guide to Internet Safety which they can find if, uh, on the Internet if they simply go into Google or one of the other search engines and put in a parent's guide to Internet safety. It will bring up um, a link to the FBI's parent's safety guide, which has some very good uh, tips as to how to keep your children safe. Um, and amongst those tips, um, uh, if you want, I'll run through them really quickly. Um, the first one that they say, and this makes sense with a whole lot of things when you're raising children, the number one thing is to communicate. Basically talk to your child um, about 
um, sexual victimization and the potential of online danger. Um, and they recommend that you spend time with your children online to see what websites your children go to. Um, and they also recommend that you keep the computer in a common room in the house, not in the child's bedroom, so that when the child is using the computer, you can easily get to it and see what it is that they're doing. Um, and for especially younger children, you want to make use of whatever parental controls um, are available in your software so that you can prevent children from doing the types of things like online chat where they're at greatest uh, risk of being contacted by somebody who wants to do them harm. Um, and then the other thing is to always maintain access to your child's online account, uh, especially their email accounts, and randomly check them so that you can see you know, who's sending them email, who they're sending email to. And you know, this goes back to the communications. You should be upfront with your children about the fact that um, at whatever age they're at, they, um, they're not adults yet and there are certain activities that just aren't appropriate and that you're going to be monitoring what it is that they're doing. Right, I have an, another um, online question, which is a good one. If someone suspects their computer has been infected, how do they find a computer forensics first person? And if that person is not near them, uh, can that person check the computer? So I know you've accepted computers from different parts of the of the state and other states, and and I've known other computer forensics experts that do the same thing. What would the process be in doing that? Sure. Um, it really depends on what state the you're in. If you're in South Carolina, South Carolina requires that anybody doing computer forensics for hire be uh, licensed, either as a private investigator or as an attorney. Um, and um, the best way that I've found to find computer forensics people, at least in South Carolina, is the, uh, the South Carolina um, uh, SCALI, the South Carolina Association of Private Investigators, has a website, uh, which is uh, scalinv.com. And on there is a, uh, is a directory of the PIs who are members of SCALI, and it lists them by their specialty. And just about everybody, I think, who does computer forensics in South Carolina is, uh, is listed on that website. So they can certainly find somebody who's uh, listed as doing computer forensics and see where they're located and find them. Uh, for people for other states, um, if, in fact, their state also has a, um, a law that requires uh, computer forensics examiners to be licensed, the best place to find that out would be to go online and find their uh, private investigators um, association for the state and make some contact with them and they'll probably know whether or not you need to have somebody in your state who's licensed and they probably will have a list there of the people who specialize in computer forensics. And, and I would think um, like anything else, if they, if they want to hire somebody, they should also ask the questions. Not only cost, because that's important, but also what's your background? What certifications do you have? How much experience do you have doing this? And do you have experience collecting evidence for court purposes? Because not everybody knows how to collect it properly, where there's integrity and uh, and also where um, there's no risk of it being compromised. And I know that's a big issue in the computer forensics world. Right. I mean, the other thing exactly what they need to ask is if their anticipation is that this is going to go into court, there's going to be litigation. They want to find out if 
that examiner has in fact uh, been to court, has been qualified by the court as an expert. Um, and if they've ever not been qualified by the court as an expert, those are really crucial questions to, to ask. Um, and um, obviously you want to have somebody, if you're going to court, who has been to court before and who the court trusts and who has been um, um, accepted uh, by the court um, as an expert in the field. Right, and that goes back to credentials and verifying those. And don't be afraid to ask for a contract and, and actually request or demand a contract so that the, the money is outlined in there and also the person's credentials, and don't be afraid to ask about those and get references as well. Um, back to the, the children and protecting children, Steve, talk a little bit about online predators, um, online pornography, child pornography, and I know my son's got a Facebook page, but I have his password. I uh, demand that I remain a friend of his so I know when he makes posts. And I can go in, I have his password to go in and check his Facebook so I can keep tabs on what his friends are saying and what he's saying. And and I think that's important. You made that, that um, reference earlier to knowing what your kids are doing and talking with them openly. I've never made it a secret that I have all his passwords and he's going to make sure that I have them. So I think it's it's important to keep monitoring that way. And then if, if that fails or you're not sure it's working, then you can go to the software and actually, uh, or the key logger and keep, uh, keep your eye on the ball that way as well. But this pornography issue and this online safety issue, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Um, well, there are a couple related issues now. Um, um, as far as predators who prey on younger children, um, there's usually one of two types of predators. Uh, there are those who will spend a lot of time with the children um, in a rather slow process of habituating them to more and more uh, sexual and then graphic material. Um, it's a process which... Um, in the law enforcement field is referred to as grooming um, and I've investigated a number of cases uh, of uh, child sexual predators who in fact were engaged in grooming one was up in Rock Hill, South Carolina um, and there the um, individual spent months sending uh, basically he found a 12 year old girl in a chat room that was set up for children uh, which is another problem because that's where these people usually um, find these kids is in chat rooms where the parents think it's safe. It's a child's chat room. Um, and they find somebody and they just start spending a lot of attention on that person. Uh, when I got the, the case, we um, went in and got the computer surreptitiously uh, from this person. His wife actually suspected something and got us the computer when he wasn't aware that we had it. Uh, when I analyzed the computer, I found out that he was just at the point, having spent several months with this 12-year-old, he was just at the point of meeting with her. And, in fact, um, we got an email from her, uh, from him to her saying, can I meet you at such and such a McDonald's? And she sent back and said, okay, but only if I can bring my 9-year-old sister with me, um, which was kind of chilling. Um, and at that point, um, I worked on a warrant application 
which is going to be faxed to the solicitor in York County, which is where Rock Hill is, while the sled agents who I was working with were actually leaving from Columbia to go uh, meet the um, solicitor at this person's door uh, in, in Rock Hill. Um, and that was sort of like the most extreme of these um, cases where somebody um, spends time to groom children. And the um, other thing, would, I'm sorry, the, the, the other thing that would be a little bit scary to me too as a parent is if if someone in these chat rooms talks your kid into having pictures taken of them or them taking pictures of themselves and then sending those to this person, then that person disperses those all over the country or all over the world without the child's knowledge. And so then the person, the child is exploited in that way in addition to being exploited by this grooming technique or whatever else the predator may have this child get involved in. Right. And, in fact, in this Rock Hill case, the girl had actually sent pictures to the guy. And, and uh, uh, that, that was an aspect of it. Um, there, there's another um, thing that's going on now with teens, which is uh, the sexting, where they... Uh, they all have cell phones, pretty much, and they send um, sexually explicit uh, text messages back and forth, and then they take pictures of, of themselves and send those out. And uh, there have been a lot of very high-profile cases recently, um, and the statistics on this are rather scary in that um, there was just a, a study that came out saying that between 30 and 40 percent of teens between the ages of 14 and 24 um, have engaged in sexting, and about 20% of them have exchanged uh, naked pictures with someone over their cell phone or over their computer. And so um, you've, you've, you've opened up another door, too, that I'm sure our callers are interested in. Gosh, we could spend another whole show just talking about cell phone forensics and sexting and the software that people can put on cell phones so they can intercept their calls and their emails. I, I want to thank you for joining us today, and I would really like to do another show in the future. We're real short on time now, but um, perhaps you'll come back in the future and do a cell phone forensics show with us. Sure. Um, that would be great. I would appreciate that. Once again, Steve's contact information, is his phone number is 843-216-1100, and his website is abramsforensics.com. Uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. This is the Vicki Child Show, produced and broadcast by Zeus Radio Network for Hear Women Talk. Please join us again next time, and thank you for being with us.